Hello and welcome. We are Restoration Church in beautiful Prescott, Arizona. Thank you for joining us. My name is Nate Huss and I am stoked you are tuning in to our teaching of the week. If you are new, so glad you found us. If you haven't already and would like to learn a little bit more about us, jump over to restorationaz.org. All right, let's grab our Bibles and dive into this week's teaching. If you have a Bible, you can turn to to Matthew chapter 6. We'll be there in just a moment. Last week, I introduced our our practice, our new series on fasting. And I really didn't talk about fasting at all, except for the fact that we would be in a fasting practice. And instead, we talked about the foundation of spiritual disciplines as a whole, uh, of which fasting is one. And if you were with us, I I said this, and it's something I want to kind of just review as we dive in, because I think it's really important for us to remember this. Spiritual disciplines are not payments used to purchase being heard or seen by God. And I think oftentimes, especially if you've been in church for a while, there can be this this tendency we have to try to earn things from God, even as we talked about it last week, sort of to manipulate God because we're arrogant enough to think that we can do such a thing. And so sometimes we can view spiritual disciplines, whether that's fasting or praying or being in, in Bible studies, studying the scriptures, silence and solitude as these ways to earn God's favor, to earn the right to be heard and seen by him. And the scriptures are so clear that that just will never happen. And so before we dive into fasting, I want to reiterate and and emphasize that. And to keep in mind, if you've been in church for a long time, if you've been following uh, Jesus for some time, depending on the, the church maybe you grew up in or you've been a part of, you actually have more propensity. You're more prone to being, I'll even say deceived into that way of thinking. We can lose sight of the Savior even within our churches and try to save ourselves by the quote-unquote good works or spiritual disciplines we do. And so I, I, for that reason, loved what, what Matt Smethler said about this. He said, spiritual disciplines are not about making you more precious to God. They're about making God more precious to you. And I think throughout this fasting practice, that's a question you should ask yourself frequently because I think there's a good chance that we'll ebb and flow between these two places. There will be times when our heart is in a good place and, and we're just wanting to grow in our love of God and our understanding and just benefit from his presence. But then if, if you're like me, we'll get confused and we'll make it about ourselves and we'll kind of just drift into this other way of thinking where we then try to earn something from God because we feel like we have to or we feel like we can or we feel like that's what we've been taught and told to do. And so as we embrace this, this fasting practice, I think that's really key. Uh, the other thing I want to emphasize, uh, especially for those of you that are in our practice groups and you have our, our fasting practice booklets, is that we are going to, from this point forward in the teachings, my teaching today, the booklets, uh, in the next few weeks, we're going to be borrowing with permission substantially from uh, an organization called Practicing the Way. Their whole organization is building practices like this and uh, providing really great content and resourcing a pastor named John Mark Comer, who I've quoted quite a bit before, leads that. And so you'll hear from them, and you can always check out their organization uh, as well. As most of you, I think, know at this point, not all of you, but most of you, uh, my wife Chelsea and I recently had a baby. And 
I get a lot of questions about that. Two in particular. One really makes me laugh, and that's, is this your first? <laughs> Especially if people don't know me. And the answer is a pretty emphatic no, far from my first. The second question is this really fabulous question that people already know the answer to, but they still love to ask it. It's like this little twinge of joy in their hearts as these words come out and they ask me, are you getting enough sleep? And I think to myself, no, I am not. And you already know that. And that's okay. You know, that's the, the obvious one. If you've not had kids, you've heard that. You know you're going to sleep less. That's what everyone talks about. And for first-time parents, it's a little bit shocking. I remember when uh, we, we had uh, a guy named Dylan working here. He still goes to the church. He's amazing. And I told him, I'm like, dude, it's a different reality. He's like, we'll be fine. And then like three weeks into it, he's like, oh my gosh, I didn't understand. That one's obvious. But if you've not had kids, there's another thing you miss. There's something else you lack that, that is really just a bummer. And it's hot food. You wouldn't, you wouldn't know that, but when you have children, and the more you have, the worse it gets. Hot meals kind of just go out the window. And, and Chelsea and I kind of have, I wouldn't call it a fight, but a, a sort of disagreement on this where I look really selfish, and maybe I am, because I just, I want to enjoy my meal. And so I don't want to rock the baby and eat simultaneously, so I'll tell her, I'll hold them and you eat, and then after, I'll eat, but to do it at the same time, it's just, it's not gonna be good. And she likes for us, for us all to eat together, but what happens is this, we put out all the plates, and then I sit down to eat, and I, I kid you not, as soon as I'm fully seated, someone says, where's the ketchup? Because all of my children excessively love ketchup, which I think is really gross. It doesn't matter what kind of food we're eating, they want ketchup on it, and by the time I go to every plate and put a whole lot of ketchup on it, and then I sit down and I get two good warm bites. They're like, Dad, can I have some more? And I'm like, with a great attitude, sure, buddy. And I get them more food and then I go back to my plate. And it's cold at that point. I miss the hot meals, probably more than the sleep. That's because Chelsea has to endure the most lack of sleep at this point. We, uh, as, a, as a family, we enjoy good food. If we go on vacations, I think it's centered often around the, the meals that we eat, we like to have people over, we like to go to people's houses for different parties as much as my very introverted wife can, can handle that. But life is often centered on food. I, I frequently say that we as the church, one of the things we have kind of the most, uh, I think, I desire for us to change is that the church should not be known for being judgmental and hypocritical. The church should be known as people that have the most to celebrate. We should throw the greatest parties with the greatest feasts, and not all the time, not faking and pretending that life is always good. I sat seven rows back in the first service crying with someone, an older woman going through something really hard. It's life, like, there's, there's hard things for many of you in this room, and we shouldn't just pretend it's good. Jesus never said that. But we should mourn with those who are mourning and rejoice with those who are rejoicing. We should be good at feasting and throwing great parties. And, and sometimes we struggle with that. But, but Jesus has these two really key words. Even though I kind of hate fasting, which is ironic because I brought us to this place, he says, follow me. We talked about that last week. So that means take the steps I take. And Jesus both feasted and fasted. He was good at embracing the party. 
to the degree that he was often accused of being a drunkard and a glutton and, and partying too much and not being holy enough. And then he also fasted to the degree that he was accused of being too serious and not fun and overly religious. And we probably should get accused of both of those things in our lives. The, the contrast of Jesus is important. What we'll see today that while fasting is not commanded, Jesus says, follow me, and part of where he leads is into this practice that is fasting. Practicing the Way did a, uh, a survey of uh, a church as they were preparing for this, and that church, under 50% of the people had ever fasted, and less than 2% did so regularly or, or every week, and we've not done a survey, although I would kind of like to now, I'd be curious. I think the numbers would be very similar for us, and that's not a bad thing. The point is this. I think fasting for us in the West, especially the United States, has become something very, very foreign. We don't understand why it would matter. We probably don't do it. We think it's kind of for the religious elite in a nice way, or maybe the religious kind of crazy on another. Like, yeah, that's for the, the super people, but not for the normal ones. But throughout church history, throughout the scriptures, certainly in the time of Jesus, what was normal was to fast. It wasn't until very recently, last two, three generations, really, that fasting kind of dissipated as a normal spiritual practice. And a big part of the reason that that happened is because we had the Enlightenment, modernity, post-modernity, we had individualism, and in that we had the compartmentalization of humanity. We've got the physical part of us, that's humans. We have the psychological, intellectual, the sexual, the emotional, the relational, and they're like all different parts that are very loosely connected but don't really function as one. We address one thing at a time and not the whole collectively. And in that, we heard things that we'll talk about later like have you accepted Jesus into your heart? There's this kind of disembodiment of our humanity as we, we follow Jesus. And I think there's been a, a, a price that's been paid for that. Yet again, it was assumed for Jesus followers throughout the scriptures, throughout church history, that fasting would be a discipline and a part of their lives. I think Many of us have had good reason to not fast. It can be triggers with that of, of body shaming. I probably have heard way more, and we'll talk about this in our practice booklets, about fasting as various forms of, of diet, weight loss initiatives, all kinds of things. Probably heard very little about it in the context of following Jesus, but it's clearly there. And even though it's quite challenging, even though it's likely foreign and strange to most of us and misunderstood perhaps, is it, is it possible that we're missing out on one of the most important and influential follow me's, steps that Jesus calls us into because it's hard, because it's different, because it's foreign, because we've misunderstood it? And what are we missing out on because of that? That's what I want to spend some time talking about. Turn in your, in your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 6. We read this 
from Jesus' teaching, often referred to as the Sermon on the Mount, and he says this. When you fast, do not look somber or sad-faced as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen. And your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. There's, there's two things initially that we should catch from this. Number one, there's an assumption made. When, not if, you fast. Again, it's not a command for us to fast. But Jesus clearly assumes that we will when you fast. So are we? Is that a part of our following of Jesus when he says, follow me? And then the the second thing we learn here is that there's a reward in fasting. There's a reward from fasting. Then your father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And, And this is really, really important. And I wanna emphasize this so it doesn't seem like we have a contradiction there. Rewards can seem similar. They're kind of placed in the same category as payments, as earning. But a reward is different. When you pay for something, there's this exchange. In this instance, it's not an exchange. It's not, if I fast, then I receive a reward, and God and I have this agreement on what I will get out of it. It's more like when I just see one of my kids walking through life, and I go, I want good for them. I think so often we have this crazy, Satan-manipulated and and painted idea of who God the Father is that's probably primarily angry. And so rather than thinking his natural tendency is to do good and to offer good, we think he just wants to correct with some fierce discipline all the time. Therefore we go, we need to earn his favor and his love and his ear instead of just recognizing when we spend time with him, which is what fasting is all about. There's reward in that, there's good, there's blessing. But again, even with that, even with Jesus' assumption and telling us what the result of fasting is, most of us, most followers of Jesus in our country, our church, probably don't fast as a regular part of their lives, even though it's, it's important. I wanna take a minute to talk about the history of fasting and kind of where it began and, and where it's at now. It's a major part of really every major religion, Hinduism, Buddhism, Islam, Christianity, indigenous religions. But the, the very first mention of, of fasting in human history comes with Moses in the book of Exodus in response to what? God's salvation because of his goodness and then his plan for them. So a a looking back and a looking forward, Moses is on Mount Sinai and he fasts. And that's just one of of many examples. We see it with King David, both before and after he was king, with Samuel, with Esther, the prophets. In the the time of Jesus, it was normal for for the, the Jewish people to fast twice a week. And the early Christians continued this practice and, and took it quite seriously. Lent is, is built on the idea of fasting, which later got morphed into other things. From the second book of the Bible till the end, we see this, this pattern, this discipline, as 
what? Normal. But today it's very abnormal. It's different. It's unique. It's foreign. Fasting is, I think, one of the most essential and powerful ways that we can relate to and interact with and be uh, really moved by the presence of God. But for many of us, it's one that we often reject. I love this quote about fasting. Fasting gives birth to prophets. She strengthens the powerful. Fasting makes lawgivers wise. She's a safeguard for the soul, a steadfast companion for the body, a weapon for the brave, and a discipline for champions. Fasting repels temptations, anoints for godliness. She's a companion for sobriety, the crafter of a sound mind. In war, she fights bravely, and peace, she teaches tranquility. The life of Jesus, the depth of the scriptures, the scope of church history say this matters, but in recent cultural movements, including church culture, we've neglected it. Let's now kind of shift and talk about some of the basics of, of what fasting is, because there's, there's misconceptions, especially with cultural movements, both religious and not. At its core, at its foundational level, fasting is simply not eating food. Sometimes biblically that includes not having water as well. But we've kind of added things onto that. We do quote unquote fasts from social media or shopping or screen time or all, a variety of different things or specific types of diets that we might call fasting. And while they're related, fasting in the biblical sense, and while those things can be very good, I should add, but at its core, it's about not having food because that does something specific, body, soul, mind, spirit, collectively to who we are as humans. Another question we need to, to answer is how long is a fast? And because it's not a command for us, there really isn't a set time. Traditionally, the most common timing for a fast was sunrise to sundown, which if I think about that, I think I can do that. Much past that, I go, that's gonna probably not go so well. And I think a tendency for many of us and for many people I know when they enter into the practice and the discipline of, of fasting is we get excited about it. We go, well, if this is powerful and God's gonna do something great, like, let me go all for it. And we pick something beyond that, and then we give up and quit because it's too hard. Uh, your, your practice booklets will talk about how it's best to start slow. There will be impact enough. Throughout the scriptures, we see sunrise to sundown. We see a 24-hour fast. We see three-day, seven-day, 21-day fasts, even month-long fasts or 40-day fasts. But again, it's, it's not commanded. It's really about offering ourselves to God, which we'll, we'll talk about more. Another question is, when do we fast? Not just for how long, but at what times, for what reasons? And, and really, there's two reasons. One is rhythm as a, a normal way of life. You know when you, you hear a rhythm in life, life has pace, life has a, a way of finding this ebb and flow of our work, of our rest, of our fun, of things that are hard, of things that are easy, and we get so accustomed to the rhythm life brings Sometimes placing a rhythm like fasting is this anchor that just doesn't let us get too far from Jesus. It's an anchor that lets him be the prominent voice and influence in our lives because when we are hungry, we hunger for him and we're reminded to let go of our own control. 
and to let him be God. Because all of us are still fighting to be God, just like Eve was in the beginning. So one when, one reason of fasting is to create it as a rhythm to keep Jesus as king of our lives. The second, and, and this is the more prominent one in the scriptures, is to fast in response to something. Often this was a national crisis of some sort. We, we see this in Esther 4 when God's people are facing genocide and she calls for a three-day fast and they do that and they're saved. We see it with a group of people that were not considered God's people, the Ninevites in the book of Jonah when he goes very begrudgingly. He doesn't want them to repent. Yet they listen and their king demands this fast for the nation and God relents. God forgives. We see it in, in 1 Samuel when King Saul dies and the whole nation fasts for seven days. There's quite a few things in our lives, communally and individually, that demand a response. And the response of fasting can be a powerful one. We have all kinds of crises too, nationally and individually. There's grief in this room, sometimes from very specific things and actions taken or not taken. There's questions, there's confusion, there's needs. And fasting can be a very appropriate and traditional throughout the scriptures response to these things in our lives. The, the next question is if we fast with other people or if we fast alone and individually. And in a kind of similar time frame and similar timing to the last two, three generations I was talking about where, where fasting kind of dissipated, especially in the West and in the United States, individualism really rose up. And so what we're doing right now in this moment together as a people, we're gathered and we are communally singing songs, which is powerful, and we're studying the scriptures together, which is great. For many of us, that's the extent of how we follow Jesus together. And the rest is how you do it on your own. You have your own private devotional time and prayer time and studying the scriptures time. Maybe you go to a small group but we've lost the art and the beauty and the power of praying together as a people in the everyday stuff of life, of fasting together for a cause, of reading the scriptures out loud together in homes and workplaces, because we've allowed Christianity, we've allowed following Jesus to be relegated from the public sphere of life to the private sphere of life. And we've accepted that, but that's never what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to all. And so, I think one of the greatest losses for the church today that you're probably actually hurting from, whether you recognize it or not, is that most of the time we follow Jesus as individuals. When there's hardly any commands cover to cover in the whole Bible written to individuals. Almost all of them are either written to churches or nations or tribes or families but we take most of them on an individual level. There, there could be some confusion too with the, uh, the passage that we read earlier, Matthew chapter six. Jesus says, don't let anyone else know that you're fasting. Don't look ugly and have people question you so that you get a reward and you could be like, yeah, I'm spiritual, I'm fasting. The, the reason that he says that is not because other people shouldn't know, it's about virtue signaling. He says, they've received their reward in full. They wanted attention for being religious and they got it and that's it. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't do these activities and these disciplines together. 
It's just, again, a matter of the heart. Why are we doing that? Then we get to the, the last but the most important question, why do we fast? As much as I dislike it, why would I choose to have us as a church embrace this together? That's a, an important question. There's, there's really four reasons we see. The first one, the one we'll spend kind of time wrapping up today uh, about is this. It is to offer ourselves to Jesus. It's the number one reason why we fast. It's the heart of the matter. It's the, the foundation. The other three that the uh, coming weeks we'll discuss are to grow in holiness, to amplify our prayers, and then to stand with the poor. We'll talk about each of these more, but the foundational level is to offer ourselves to Jesus. John Mark Comer, regarding that, says this. He says, this is the ultimate reason for fasting, hunger for Jesus and for his transformation. We can connect that to our, our first quote. It's not about making us more precious to God. It's not about earning anything from him. It's about enjoying him. And fasting is one of the best ways to do so. John Piper calls fasting whole body hungering for God. New Testament scholar Scott McKnight calls it body talk, a way of praying with your body. God, I hunger for you. God, I want you. God, I need you. A way to connect all of our, our being. Comer continues on this thought and he says this, now we may not feel hungry for God. If we're honest, we may feel apathetic about God and that's probably many of us in this room right now. And all of us have felt that at different times, maybe the majority of times. But he continues, all the more reason to fast, as fasting has the potential to awaken the latent hunger within all souls for God. This is one of the ways that we learn to love God more, not we earn God's love. If you think about it, we do it every week too in our trusting Jesus prayer. We pray offering all of our bodies to him. We start with our head and our mind and our thinking. We move to our heart and our desires and what's valuable, our fears. Go down to our feet and our spaces. We pray about our stuff, our sin, the work of our hands, our whole body. And that's intentional. And it's biblical. We offer all of us to him because he alone is worthy. I've been reading through the, the book of, of Revelation lately and I'm surprisingly loving it. And there's two things that really stand out if you, you read it rapidly and don't get caught up in all the imagery and craziness. One, Jesus alone is worthy. It says it again and again and again. Who is worthy? And there is only one name and it is the name of Jesus. And then the second thing that stands out that is just beautiful, I almost laugh with kind of this weird, awkward joy every time I read it now in Revelation. It says, he was able to do this because of his power and his might. He is worthy and he is powerful and so we present all of ourselves to him. Our whole bodies, our whole beings and fasting is a bridge to do that. Do you know why? Because you are not worthy and you are not powerful and I am not worthy and I am not powerful. But Satan is so good at getting us to think that we are and so it takes something weird and foreign and hard and misunderstood like fasting to break the habit and the rhythm and the routine of trusting self and to surrender enough to trust Jesus. 
We, we read about this in, in Romans 12, one through two. I'll read it. Paul writes to a church, plural, many people in Rome, and he says, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, or depending on the translation, because of the mercy of God, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Notice it says, I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Notice that it does not say, I urge you to present some of your body as a living sacrifice. Notice that it doesn't say, I urge you to present whatever parts of your body you feel comfortable with as a living sacrifice. And maybe most of all, notice it does not say, I urge you to give your heart to Jesus. And it does not say, I urge you to accept Jesus into your heart as your personal savior. Now all those things are good and beautiful and should happen. And elsewhere in the scriptures, we do read about the heart when it's symbolic of the whole. But sometimes I'm, I'm curious if a lukewarmness that is referred to in the scriptures comes about because we're sort of comfortable offering our heart to Jesus, but we're not comfortable offering the entirety of our bodies and all that that means to Jesus. I mean, think about it for a second. What sounds more challenging? What sounds more costly? What sounds more adventurous and risky? Saying, Jesus, you can have my heart, I trust you with that. Or Jesus, you can have my whole body. The body comes with a whole lot more risk and he better be trustworthy because that's all of us. Yet, most of us have probably heard a whole lot more about opening our hearts and giving our heart to Jesus than our whole body. But what the scriptures say is we offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Therefore, by the mercy of God or because of, this is kind of the, the crux of the matter here. We offer our bodies because it's the, the sphere, it's the connection point of our spirituality, our physicality, our emotion, emotional life, our relational life. It's all connected in our bodies that God created and said we're good. Also, keep in mind, Jesus chose to have a body to be human like us. We call this the incarnation. And then he rose, not with his spirit only, but with his body. And then when we read the teaching of Paul, he clearly says there will be the resurrection of our bodies and they'll be remade, they'll be improved. But there's bodies because God designed it that way because the body leads all of us. We're one connected thing called human. We're not a bunch of separated parts. When we fast, the way of Jesus, the teachings of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the strength of Jesus, the peace of Christ that surpasses all understanding, the power of the Spirit, it becomes embodied within us. It becomes one with who we are. This is union with Christ. And one of the ways that the person of Christ permeates our being is when we kind of open this doorway through this bridge called fasting and say, take all of me. I give it to you because you alone are worthy and there's no one else. 
by the mercies of God or because of the mercy of God, offer your bodies as a living sacrifice. Why do we do this? Because Jesus has already done this for us. His mercy was that he gave up his life for us on a cross. He gave up his body fully, and so we give up our body very partially in response to his mercy and say, you're trustworthy. He gave us salvation, and so we give him our hunger as a pathway to let him work, not only in our hearts, but in our minds and in our spaces and with the work of our hands and in the the people we relate to in all of life. And then it says what? This is your, your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. We offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. Not we make a payment. Notice that it's different. And then transformation follows because that's what Jesus does. He does good. That's what his habit is. He works powerfully and beautifully. I'll close with this. Jesus assumed his disciples would fast, but he did not command it. Neither did the apostles, all the authors of the New Testament, uh, letters, books. There was the assumption, but not the command. You do not have to fast. You can ignore everything that we're doing is irrelevant. Yet, Jesus did say, come and follow me. And part of what he stepped into was fasting. And part of what we see throughout church history, throughout the scriptures, and through the life of Jesus is the power of experiencing the presence of God through the discipline of fasting. And so I think it's worth us as a church family, not individuals, as a church family, embracing this power, embracing the presence of Jesus and inviting him to work in our lives by offering our bodies to him. And, and through that, we get reward, which I love how Comer says this. Ultimately, is Jesus the reward. Ultimately, is Jesus himself. And there's no greater reward than him leading us in all of our lives. Not just from the cross, not just from the grave into resurrection, but where you walk, he walks. And so, you don't have to, but we... Uh, cordially invite you to walk with us as we fast, as we do hard things, as we do foreign things, because we believe Jesus is worthy. Let's pray. Jesus, I again thank you for your goodness. I thank you that we have nothing to earn from you and that we can't earn anything from you, but you have just offered by your grace and your mercy your love to us. God, we recognize there's a a wrestling match and a war and a battle over our everyday, over who we choose to trust. So we ask that you give us eyes to see that, eyes to choose you and to surrender to your authority, to your power, to your goodness, and to your love. We offer our bodies to you. We ask that you lead all of us. We thank you that you're good in every moment. In Jesus' name. Thanks so much for tuning in to our teaching of the week. We are so grateful to partner with you in sharing the love of Jesus in a world that really deeply longs for it. And whether you're new here 
seeking more information, looking for a church community, or considering financial partnership, go ahead and visit restorationaz.org for more details. Okay, let's continue making a difference together. So how do we do that? By remembering Jesus is the only one who is trustworthy always, no matter the moment. So press on as we continue to practice the way of Jesus.